when you want someone to know you, where do you start? How do you catch someone up on an entire life lived outside of their view? A personality varied and complex, a collection of priorities, some of which seem at odds with one another. How do you show someone yourself? This is a story about introductions, about the sharing of history, the demonstration of temperament, the revealing of dreams. It's a story about a God who desires to be known. And it's the story of a man who came face to face with that yearning the day he opened himself up to the impossible. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. Moses staggers away from the corpse he's just buried, the man he's just murdered. With the work of digging done, his mind is now woefully free to replay the horrors of his crime again and again. A Hebrew slave cowering beneath the relentless whip of an Egyptian taskmaster, cries of his people's pain ricocheting off temple walls, his heart hammering, rage rising, this is not right. A monstrous conglomerate of emotion, anger, guilt, sorrow, grief, disgust, tangled, fused, unprocessed. And then, reflex. If the Hebrew's God will not crush this snake, I will. A look left, then right. Violence. Retribution. Death. Was it an accident? Did he mean to kill this man? How long till the jackals find him in the sand? Did anyone see? What has he done? The next day, Moses decides to go out as usual. Best not to attract attention and keep to his normal routine. He tries to forget what happened yesterday, to put it out of his mind, but... There are Hebrews everywhere, quarrying rock, carrying brick mud, heaving hay, harvesting figs, reminding him. Suddenly, Moses stumbles upon two of them arguing with one another. The argument turns physical, blows landed by the one clearly in the wrong, and then reflex inside of Moses, this is not right. Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? Moses demands. If you will not be good to each other, who will be good to you? The assailant and his victim look Moses up and down, eyeing his clean-shaven face and royal headdress, the black coal lining his eyes. One of them spits in disgust and says, Who made you a ruler, a judge over us? Shocked anger flares on Moses' face, and then, what? Are you thinking of killing me the way you killed that Egyptian? 
Panic stabs at the pit of Moses' stomach as he processes what he's just heard. If these men know, who else does? Moses lives the next few days in fear, his mind a fog of what-ifs. He comes back to the problem again and again, picking at it like a scab, but every time he returns, it's the same. It will not go away without blood. Pharaoh explodes. He did what? When his daughter came to him all those years ago with her ridiculous request to adopt a Hebrew child, he only barely agreed, surely. I should kill him right now as a lesson to Hebrew dissidents, he said to her, perhaps as she held the baby. But if you want to take one of theirs and make him one of ours, (laughs) they'd probably hate that. You'd better raise him to be a proper Egyptian. I won't have a sympathizer walking the halls of my palace. Something like that. And now, Moses' true allegiance has been outed. Murdering a taskmaster for doing his job? Rescuing that filth by killing a representative of Pharaoh himself? The old king's rattling heart strains under the pressure of his rage. There is no question my daughter's adopted son must die. He sends soldiers to execute Moses. But Moses is one step ahead. He's seen this coming and preemptively escaped, headed for the border, for Midian. Like Adam and Eve before him, Moses is driven eastward by his sin into exile. As he journeys, Moses watches the landscape shift dramatically. The fertile Nile Delta, a place where a stone might grow if you planted it, dissolves into the barren Sinai Peninsula, where it seems that stones are the only things that grow. That and sand. So much sand. Finally, after two, three, maybe four weeks of traveling, constantly looking over his shoulder for Egyptian troops in pursuit, an exhausted Moses arrives at a miracle. A well in Midian. At long last, he sits down. Is there any greater pleasure than finally getting off your feet after being on them for too long? And then, serendipity, providence, some might even say. Seven young women arrive at the well. They've come to draw water for their father's flock. Moses watches as the young shepherdesses go about their business. And then, what's this? Men have come to the well with their sheep. They're shooing the women away. Moses gets up. This is not right. He comes to the women's aid. Once the bullies have fled, Moses helps the female shepherds with the water and finally sends them on in peace. When the young women's father, Reuel, asks why they've returned so early, his daughters tell him about the Egyptian who rescued them. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. A benevolent Egyptian, kind to the disadvantaged, using his strength only to help? Why did you leave him? Go! Invite him to come and have something to eat. Go, go. Moses agrees and stays with Reuel for a time. Reuel notices the Egyptian is everything his girl's story made him out to be. So impressed is he with this newcomer that Reuel gives Moses his daughter Zipporah in marriage. 
Things are good in Midian. Moses becomes a shepherd, makes a life here in this new place, and it begins to seem less barren. But when Zipporah gives birth to a son, Moses has to admit how strange it is to raise a family where he did not grow up. He names his new son Gershom, meaning a foreigner here. Because, he tells his bride, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. Moses' staff strikes rock, pierces sand, moving in rhythm with his body, leaving a second set of prints beside him as he leads his flock across yet another mile of uninhabited wilderness. In certain parts of the world, shepherds need only move their flocks once or twice a month. The vegetation is so abundant. This is not one of those places. Mountains, cliffs, dunes, slopes. The shapes here vary greatly, but the color, there is mostly just one color here. Bleached ochre saturates the landscape, painting the earth in sepia tones and thirst. Moses' sheep look this way and that for something to eat, but options are scarce. It's as if this place were slain ages ago, petrified now, rigor mortis having fused the earth's once soft hands into clenched fists. Finally, a patch of scattered weeds. Moses' staff punches more quickly now, his eyes set on a pass shadowed by two rising walls of stone, one lesser and one greater. His grateful sheep bow their heads to eat, and Moses, after scanning the ground for snakes, lifts his eyes to the mountains. The peaks here are dizzying, especially for a man who grew up in the Delta. The greater of the two closest prominences looms before him, wild and unnerving, scarred, ancient, majestic. Mount Horeb, they call it, mountain of the deity. Moses squints, perhaps, as he cranes his neck and surveys the summit. It looks like the kind of place a deity might call home. When he looks back to check on his sheep, something catches his eye. There, at the foot of the mountain, fire. Interesting. Someone's camped out here. Friend or... F no. No, that, that's no campfire. It's too... tall. Moses squints again. It's a sinna, a thorn bush that's burning, a brush fire. If Moses moves to protect his sheep, he stops, eyes darting left and right. No, nothing else is aflame. Moses, head tilting, brow furrowed, transfixed, moves toward the light. Closer now. Curious. The bush is on fire, but it is not burning. The flames lick the branches and leaves, but they do not chew them. I must see this. How? Why doesn't the bush... How can something be wrapped in that kind of power and, and not be destroyed? Staff rises and falls. Sandals step cautiously, draw nearer. Moses. Moses. The shepherd's skin turns to goose flesh as someone, something, 
says his name from within the fire. Eyes wide, lips trembling, Moses replies, Here I am. Do not come any closer, comes the voice again. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Moses bends, reaching for his shoes. His shaking hands fumble at the leather straps. He plants the soles of his feet in this mysterious soil. He looks back at the bush. Heat radiates from the mass of thin, curving branches, the length of each one punctuated by thorns, tiny flaming swords marking the Edenic presence of the divine. I am the god of your father. My father. Does a tear gather in Moses' eye at the mention of Amram? He's tried so hard all these years to hold on to the handful of memories he took with him from Goshen, his father's face among them. This is Amram's God. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses shields his eyes, frantically buries his face in his cloak or behind his arms, terrified to look upon deity itself. How can you be face to face with this kind of power and and not be destroyed? The voice comes again. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. The words are full of emotion and I am concerned about their suffering. Flashes of the abuse he witnessed during his final days in Egypt play in Moses' mind, surely. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. Moses' eyes light up at the prospect of deliverance and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Does Moses' excitement falter at the mention of these nations? But if those people live in this land already, how are the Hebrews, say nothing of escaping from Egypt, the most powerful? Well, I suppose a god, if he's fearsome enough, can... The cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. Moses freezes, his veiled face processing that last word. The deity continues, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. What? am I? Moses' voice is raised now, wonder and awe eclipsed by fear and panic. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and, and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? It is a rhetorical question. Moses looks down, perhaps, at his hands bathed in the light of the bush. 
deep lines marking his knuckles, skin pulled taut across winding veins. They are the hands of an old man. An old shepherd, not some young conquering general. There's nothing that would qualify. I will be with you. Is that supposed to be an answer? And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Horeb stands unflinching, witness to these words. And Moses, perhaps Moses is confused. Isn't a sign supposed to precede? Is he going to have to wait until this quest is complete to know that it was, in fact, this God that sent him on the mission? Who is this God, anyway? The God of the Israelites, yes, the God his father and mother used to pray to, but that was so long ago. What was his name? Suppose, Moses ventures, I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Fire crackles within and around the bush. Flames flitter orange and yellow and red and blue. Moses waits for a name. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Is that supposed to be an answer? A name identifies disambiguates by way of origin or parentage. Whose are you? Where did you come from? Uh, Moses is my name because I was drawn out of the water. A name describes one's lot in life like Gershom or, or offers prophetic direction. It's descriptive ruler of the seas or sun god. I am who I am. This is less a name and more a statement. Rather than differentiating himself relative to others, it's as if this God claims all reality. I am. Eh, yeah, it's so unconditional. As if he were existence itself. Utter autonomy. Inevitability. The one who, who is. The bush flickers. Say to the Israelites, he is. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. And then the voice, Yahweh's voice, tells Moses the plan. The old man's eyes grow wide. Now that the plan has been made known, Moses has reservations. He ventures a glance, perhaps, at the bush. Flames encompass still soft leaves fluttering in the rising heat. Moses shakes his head. What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, Yahweh did not appear to you? Moses is still processing Yahweh's startling switch from I will deliver Israel to you will deliver Israel. Flashes of the past play in his mind, surely, the snarling, serpentine face of an Egyptian slave master, whip tearing flesh, cries of anguish in Moses' mother tongue. 
Sand shoveled with trembling hands. That sick feeling in his gut. Conflict between brothers. Intervention. Rejection. Accusation. Loathing. They did not listen to me then. Why would they listen to me now? Suddenly, Moses is jarred from this trance. What is that in your hand? He looks down at those old hands of his once again. His staff. He hasn't put it down. Forgot he was holding it, probably. It's practically a part of him these days. Throw it on the ground. A look of confusion. Then, obedience. Moses throws his staff onto the ground. When it hits the soil, the rigid timber goes limp, bends, curves, and changes not just shape, but texture. Wood grain morphs into a tighter, more dimensional pattern. Scales? The head of the staff opens wide, fangs materialize, black, shining eyes push through like glistening eggs half laid. They blink. A snake? Moses runs, moves quite quickly for a man of his age, any age, in fact. But he doesn't get more than a few paces away before the voice calls him. Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Moses stops, heart pounding, turns, wary. His bare feet step again toward the bush, toward the tiny flaming swords, toward the writhing serpent that's appeared in this strange garden of Yahweh's. Moses bends low, reaches out a quivering arm, and grabs the snake's tail. Immediately, the squirming form grows stiff. The mouth closes and fades, gleaming eyes disappear. The serpent is gone. Moses turns his staff over in his hands, surveying the wood grain with wonder. This, says Yahweh, is so that they may believe that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. But then, more. Put your hand inside your cloak. Moses looks down at his hand and slowly reaches inside his cloak then removes it. When he does, his stomach drops, reflexive dread surging through his heart. No longer bronze, his skin is pale, inflamed, white as snow. Leprosy! It was a trick. This god lured me here to toy with me. I, I cannot go near my wife, my grandchildren. Now put it back in your cloak. The voice startles Moses out of his morbid imaginings. He nods abruptly, reaches his hand back into his cloak, closes his eyes, and holds his breath. When he takes it out, every trace of leprosy has vanished. If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. Wait, may? If they do not believe these two signs, or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. But Moses' mind is already racing ahead, his flesh teeming with objections, still scrambling for some well-reasoned disobedience. 
Pardon your servant, master. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to me. I, I am slow of speech and, and tongue. The fire churns within the tangle of branches. The voice speaks slowly, patiently. Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. Pardon your servant, master. Please, send someone else. The flames flare, heat surging against Moses' skin. The voice sounds different now, sharper. What about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. Aaron? From Goshen? The face of Moses' big brother flickers in his mind, the memory almost gone now, more than seven decades later. You will speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. As if I were God to Moses turns, surrendered, exhausted, afraid, astonished, mind racing, eyes unfixed. Suddenly he's shaken again from his trance. But take this staff in your hand so that you can perform the signs with it. He looks at the ground. His staff, he must have dropped it in his surprise at the leprosy. Strange how fear can make you lay down something you've depended on for so long. Moses picks the staff back up. When he rises, perhaps, the fire is gone. The air feels almost cold without it. He takes one last look at the bush. Its leaves are green, its branches unsinged, fully alive. What now? Now, to Egypt. Hey, Justin here. Thanks so much for listening to Induction, part two of our journey through the Exodus. As usual, I'm sharing some fascinating stuff about the content of this episode in the latest, the free bi-weekly email I send. In today's issue, you'll find, among other things, a photo from my trip across the Sinai wilderness, as well as a picture of my family praying beside what Christians for 1,100 years have claimed is the burning bush. I've also got some info in there about upcoming appearances I'd love for you to be a part of in Arkansas and Nebraska. You can check it out and sign up at holyghoststories.org or at the link in the show notes. If you're wondering how Holy Ghost Stories gets made, it's thanks to the financial contributions of people just like you. In fact, this episode was brought to you by the generous contributions of Stephen and Lori Bridges alongside our heroic patrons on Patreon, including the Tours. 
Deborah, Riley and Autumn, Valerie, Travis, Steve, Shannon, Kara, Dawn, Catherine, Jean-Paul, Brenda, Tiffany, Sarah Beth, Stephanie, Vicenta, Cheyenne, Boo, Helen, Tebby, Scott and Susan, Derek, Maddie, Eric, John, Ricky, Mark, Kimmy, Stephen, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Nelwyn, Julie, Aaron, Jamie, Stephen, Bill and Trina, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa, Sloan and Jamie. You guys are the staff in my hand. Yahweh is working wonders with you and using you to enable me on his mission. So thanks. If you want to join these fine folks and be someone who helps make sure this podcast continues to exist, head to patreon.com slash holy ghost stories, patreon.com slash holy ghost stories, links in the show notes. Holy Ghost Stories is a production of Hazefire Studios. Our composer is Kendall Ramsour. Our sound engineer is Joel Dolly. Manuscript editing by J.L. Gerhardt. Research, writing, narration, and direction by me, Justin Gerhardt. Till next time.